Hello, everyone. Welcome to Why Did Peter Sink, the podcast with no introduction music. I'm going to start a six-part series today. Um, I think it will be six, called About Uranus. Yes, About Uranus, part one. It's time we talked about Uranus. It's not easy to bring up Uranus, but Uranus is an important topic more than you realize. And no, I'm not talking about the planet. I mean Uranus. I'm referring to the god of Greek mythology, also known as Father Sky, uh, who was born out of chaos by Gaia, Mother Earth. So he's one of the top gods of the lowercase g variety. The greatest coincidence in word history for any eight-year-old boy is the collision of modern English with the name of this Greek god Uranus. By sheer passage of time and happenstance of language, a child can mock and blaspheme a word that the ancient Greeks thought held power. Uranus wasn't always a funny word, though. There was a time when the word was spoken with seriousness, as Uranus and his offspring provided meaning in the ancient world. And that's where we're going in this multi-part episode. I'm not sure how many people know the story of Uranus. He's also called Oranos, which is the Greek pronunciation, and my knowledge of languages is very limited. But Oranos is not nearly as funny, so I'm going to switch to that using that version so I can shove off the dock from toilet humor before it turns into a kind of Captain Underpants fan fiction. An interesting thing about mythological systems is the order of how creation happened, or in other words, what came first. In Greek mythology, as written by Hesiod, the order of creation goes like this. Chaos was the first thing to exist, followed by Earth, or Gaia, then Tartarus, which is the underworld or hell, then love, Eros, and only after that do we get to heaven with Father Sky or Oranos. So the god of heaven, Oranos, is actually the fifth thing to come into existence. And notice that this mythology does not have a pre-existing god. No, Oranos is fifth, so he didn't even meddle in this contest, or he didn't even get to stand on the podium. Chaos and the earth were first, and they somehow begat the heavens. This order of begetting is important. And you've probably heard the word begat many times in the Bible. So I know what you're thinking here, or maybe maybe you're thinking. This probably seems really unimportant, and it certainly did to me. After all, there are many world mythology systems. There's Osiris in Egypt who follows a similar path or arrives, is born in a similar way. It's often the primordial first gods of other mythological systems that arrive in a similar pattern like this. And when I read these things years ago, I marveled mostly at how similar concepts seem to cross over with the creation story of Genesis in the Bible. In particular, the idea of chaos stood out. As I read more myths, the origin stories used this idea called chaos and it continued to appear and it fascinated me, but it led me down this classic path of doubt where I began to see all religions as being the same thing with different names, different recipes of formless chaos mixed with different character names. There's always a flood story too in many cultures mythology. So like many people exploring our past and our origin stories, I came to believe that various cultures arrived at a similar solid sounding story that satisfied our searching hearts and minds. And this pulled me toward classrooms instead of churches, 
as the project became comparing religions, looking for parallels to explain away the truth claims, rather than looking closely at what the truth claims of these of the religions were saying. So after enough nights of looking up at the stars and wondering, I imagined that the ancient peoples found their way to an origin story that helped them sleep at night. I recall doing this myself, leaning on the hood of a car and smoking cigarettes with friends, staring into the Milky Way on humid summer nights. And those were great nights, uh, high school times. Between drags, we, we would ponder the depths of the sky, just like any ancient person might. Underneath the billions of distant fiery stars, the cherry red end of the Marlboro would burn brighter than them all. And sooner or later, somebody, someone would bring up the fact that staring into space makes us feel really small. Or better yet, there'd be a question of, you ever wonder what's out there? Or worse, do you ever wonder what the purpose of all this is? And we'd think we'd be thinking in terms of homework or uh, those kind of things. But we were really talking about the meaning of life. Uh, and that to me seems like the perfect leading question into the beginning of myth. Um, rather than dig too deep though, we'd just move on to talk about something else, like usually girls we liked or um, you know where the party was that weekend, which was at least a topic closer to earth. So it wasn't so deep. Once I started reading the old stories, the old mythologies, um, you know, Maybe this, I thought maybe, maybe ancient smokers laying on the hood of their chariots came up with some of these, but who knows? Um, but anyway, I started to see a remarkable similarity in these stories around the world um, with cultures that didn't even seem that connected. So I thought it was all quite simple and we just needed a story to make sense of the unknown. But as I returned later in life to these stories, some things began to stand out that seemed insignificant when I was a teenager or a 20, 20 year old. Uh, having decided that the stories were really nothing more than entertaining fairy tales from ignorant bushwhacking cavemen, I had ignored the fact that these stories were told over and over again for thousands of years, and that these stories did not provide mere entertainment, but actually formed the rock of meaning in people's lives, in their actual lives. These stories attempted to give people something to stand on and make sense of their thoughts when they peered out onto the vast ocean, or looked into a gaping night sky, or survived a howling storm, or mourned the death of a child. So these stories had more depth and meaning to them than I think we tend to understand, because we consider our ancestors to be simpletons, at least until the Enlightenment. Many of us, including me, think that our current generation is the only one that is finally coming on to the truth. I thought that way for quite a long time. Uh, we still have origin stories, modern ones, like the Big Bang Theory, which seems to be the most solid model that science has found. Um, and of course, science is always trying to chase down new origin stories, like now the multiverse, um, or the idea that we live in a computer simulation, like the Matrix. You have these things. Um, there's future stories of, of you know, how things will be soon, like the singularity and you know interesting things around those topics but we're still searching and creating stories or just think of ufos as modern mythology of how much that sprung up um, since the invention of the airplane and space travel in essence we're still staring into the sky and wondering the same questions making us not all that different than the ancient storytellers the story of oranos being born out of chaos however 
stopped me in my tracks one day because I revisited it and I realized how different Hesiod, the Greek writer, how different his creation story actually is from the book of Genesis. And as usual, I'm late to the game. I don't think I've kicked over any new rocks and found treasure, but this struck me as significant. Um, obviously, I'm not an academic. I'm an IT troubleshooter, like a database guy. So this isn't uh, something that people haven't seen before, but yet I think it's worth talking about. The key difference between the Greek story of creation and the Genesis story of creation is what came first. In the Greek story, it's chaos, and in Genesis, it's God. So I passed over this various times without thinking it mattered, but it does, because the root of the origin that the universe grows out of results in a different path for the universe. The order matters a great deal. If God was made, then there is always a question of something before God. And if God was first and made everything, including the chaos, then God is the final stop for all questions of existence, for all questions of meaning, of understanding, and purpose in this world. If God is first, if big G God is first, then he is the answer to all questions. The buck stops with God, so to speak. The order of which came first is critical, and so is this other part of it, uh, the life of Oranos. So Oranos uh, being one of these top primordial gods of the Greek world, um, his life story in the myth itself is very important, and it's very different from the god of Christianity and Judaism. So, Oranos did not have omnipotent power, and nor did Gaia, and nor did Chaos, or Eros, or Tartarus. None of these gods were omnipotent, so omnipotent being all-powerful. Oranos is treated as the top dog in the stories, but he suffers a defeat by his own children. So he could not withstand a rebellion and is toppled by sub-gods. And what happens to him? Oranos is put on the bench. And a new god, in this case his son Cronus, or Saturn, takes over. So this idea of an infallible, omnipotent god, it fades because if Father Sky can be beaten, then so can the new god. And that is exactly what happens to Saturn. He gets defeated by Zeus. So um, again, you may just hear these stories and think this is, a, this is minor, that it's not a big deal, that it has no impact on our lives today, and you'll move on. You may think these are just stories like how the tiger got its stripes, but they are not stories like that. These are much bigger stories because they are foundational for the meaning of life. Uh, how the tiger got its stripes doesn't affect how you feel when you lay back on the hood of the car and look at the stars. But if you live in a world where chaos spawned the gods instead of an omnipotent God creating order out of chaos, the foundation you build your life upon will probably lead to different patterns of living. I think we naturally want to respond to these ancient myths like silly fables, like these are just kid stories, like Rudyard Kipling or Brothers Grimm or Aesop kind of uh, tales. These old stories seem so distant from us and, and almost, you know, even childish. But I think we are fooled about our level of sophistication by our indoor plumbing and iPhones. We're really not unlike the ancient storytellers nearly as much as we think. And even the simple fables by Kipling and Grimm and Aesop have far more depth than we'd like to think they do. The story of the Bible is different from that of mythology, and that's kind of where I'm headed here. Um, it's also unlike any fable. 
And why do I say that? Because of the origin story. God exists first, and nothing defeats God in the Bible. It's actually quite boring in terms of drama, which is why studying mythology is fun. There are more characters in mythology, there's more variety, there's love, there's violence, there's treachery. Um, it's like The Sopranos or Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, and the Bible doesn't read like those stories. It's different. It's very different, and it has to do with how things begin and how many gods you think they are, because if you only think there's one, that's a very different universe. So, since the one God of the Bible never suffers a defeat, there is never a power struggle at the top. You don't get this big family tree. There is a rebellion, but it is squashed, and we hear about it only briefly. The books of Ezekiel and Isaiah and Revelation discuss this rebellion a little bit, but God is never defeated, and he seems to never have been in any real danger of defeat. And why is that? Well, because he is the omnipotent creator God who created everything out of nothing. He brought all order to the chaos, doing so by his voice alone. And of course, if he wanted to, he could speak and destroy everything as well. Um, that would have been a good Metallica album, Speak and Destroy. They only had Seek and Destroy, but uh, maybe there'll be a sequel someday. Um, God created the earth and everything else. And this is unlike the Sumerian, Greek, or Egyptian myths. The famous opening line of the Bible says it best. So, you know, Genesis 1-1 is, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss and a mighty wind sweeping over the seas. So that's the opening line. And it's saying God, when, when God creates the heaven and earth, um, nothing had form or shape. It was just this darkness, this abyss, a mighty wind. It's, it's using all this imagery of a void or an emptiness. And I think in another episode, I talked about, um, 11 in Stranger Things or something where she goes into the up, this upside down world and it's like this void of water, um, silence, um, just it's, it's a scary place. So in Genesis 1, God is first. He's not created from something prior to him. Um, he creates the heavens and earth out of nothing, which uh, to sound fancy, they say ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. Um, the Greeks have it the opposite way, and so do the Egyptians and Babylonians as the gods are born out of chaos. So God is created after the chaos, whereas in the, in the, in the Christian story, uh, God is not born, he just is. He is existence itself. And that's why when Moses asks for God's name in Exodus, the answer comes back, I am. And there is no name. There is no name because he is being itself. So... Of course, that translates to like Yahweh, and that's what we use. But I am is what God gives us the answer. So the funny thing about this is that I felt drawn into Greek and Egyptian and Norse mythologies because of the characters and the conflicts. I mean, you can see this in the Marvel stuff. Um, Marvel and Disney are not making uh, stories of Genesis into blockbuster movies. They're taking the Norse mythologies because there's lots of conflicts and um, you can you can invent all kinds of things in there. But for a long time, I thought the book of Genesis was boring because it lacked uh, an exciting storyline like other mythological hierarchies. But there is a reason the book of Genesis doesn't read like the Game of Thrones mythologies of the Greeks. The reason is that the rebellion is smashed. 
in the Bible, there's no underdog upset. There's no like last second three-point shot by Cronus to defeat Oranos. You might say that Cronus doesn't, there's no Cronus at all. Um, well, there are angels, but that's different. So <laughs> the, the sub-gods don't win because they were never born. They don't exist. They don't live in the same plane as the one God. So whatever rebellion happened, it's over. God has no problem defeating it. And we move on from that as if God had just swatted a mosquito. The rebellion seems more like a nuisance event, nuisance event among God's created beings, the angels, than something he is ever concerned about like himself. The great image of this is that God is like an artist um, or, or, or an author. And the characters in the painting or book may attack one another but they cannot attack the creator because the creator is not in the painting or the book. He created it. He's outside of it. He's bigger than the work of art. The example I've heard told is that you don't see Shakespeare show up in one of his plays. Macbeth can't kill Shakespeare because Macbeth is a creation of Shakespeare. Uh, he is not the creator. He's not on that level. He's on a different plane. Macbeth can't even fathom Shakespeare, let alone attack him. Um, that's like us. With the one God, uh, fortunately, we are more than words on paper. You know, we are body and soul. So we can see hints and breadcrumbs that God has laid down for us. And, and then you can have like these transcendent experiences. Um, so you can tell that God is extremely far away, but he's also very close. And it's this very interesting dynamic, which is far more than Macbeth could ever do unless Shakespeare wrote that into the character. We also get to make choices, whereas Macbeth is stuck. He's just in the book. This is kind of like John Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn, where they're just kind of frozen in time. It's a great piece of artwork, a great poem, you know, boring probably to most people today. But um, if you like to read classic things like that, it says a lot about um, the artist and creation and what that's all about. But anyway, rather than uh, disturb God, the angels squash this little rebellion. They remove this disgruntled leader, uh, the shiny one, along with his other rebellious, snaky friends. Like those rebels, um, like the devil, they're just heaved off the deck of heaven and God just kind of relaxes on the patio with some iced tea. And I know I'm completely making that seem trivial, but you just don't see the sense that he is in any worry, danger, whatever, because God is the creator. He's not, um, they can't, uh, come out of the book and attack him. He's the artist, the creator. Uh, anyway, so this finally is what I want to discuss in this episode or series. Cultures all have this creation story and ancient mythologies also have a rebellion story among the gods. And even Genesis has the rebellion story in Adam and Eve. However, the order of creation is not the same, nor is the result of the rebellion. And these two things make a difference in how you see and interact with the world and other people. Uh, these foundational things can change how you find meaning in the world and how you explain events that happen in the world. Um, just real quick, there's this one line from Jesus that is jarring in Luke 12 because only an actual divine being could even say these words. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So um, now I don't know when that exactly happens and you can read different things about that. But um, there was a rebellion, but it's over. It's like, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, um, yeah, there was some kind of rebellion, but uh, it's been, he's been cast down and now he's, he's um, 
truly, truly subordinate, whatever. He's, he's not with the, uh, the, the angels of the winning side. Um, and of course that's because his own, his own pride. So it's his choice, but, uh, let's not go into that right now. Nothing happened to God when the rebellion occurred. So to the one God, the God of the Bible, he's fine. The rebellion occurred. Nothing happened to him. He's still the most high God and he's the only God with any power of any kind. Now consider what happens to Oranos in Greek mythology. So here's, this is from a, um, a site. I got it linked here. Uranus or Oranos was father sky, the ancient Greek personification of the heavens. And for a while, the ruler of the known universe. So Oranos was the ruler fatherless. He was conceived by Gaia alone with whom he formed the primordial couple, thus becoming an ancestor of almost all Greek gods. However, he was cruel. He was a cruel husband and he didn't allow any of his children to leave the womb of their mother, which eventually led to a rebellion and his demise at the hands of his son, Cronus. So what's interesting about that is that Oranos is mentioned as the ruler of the universe before he was replaced by these sub deities, his own children replace him. And this is a common plot in myth myths, because there's a lot of crossover behind, uh, these old stories. But, um, when, when cultures would conquer one another, they would kind of gobble up the stories and work them into their own. And then you have lots of different versions of these things, but there's these common threads. So in most mythologies, there's, an initial God who seems all powerful, but he has his throne usurped by a more youthful and virile God and proving that he was never all powerful to begin with, because if he was all powerful, he wouldn't have lost. And this is exactly what does not happen in the old Testament in Genesis. So let's just walk this path quick so we can jump ahead to Zeus and the time of Caesar when Jesus walked the earth and the state of things then. Um, we're also going to go back and talk quite a bit about Abraham, but, uh, here's the story. So the pagan stories of a higher God being replaced by the other gods is common. Of course, I already said Oranos is overthrown by Cronus or Saturn and Cronus is eventually overtaken by his, one of his sons, Zeus. And perhaps you all, we all heard of Zeus probably, um, not just because there was one named a professional wrestler with that went by the name of that in the eighties. Uh, but the actual Zeus of Mount Olympus, who threw lightning bolts and acted like Harvey Weinstein. Um, you know, he's always out doing things that are really, really questionable. He is not a model to live by. Zeus is always uh, causing, uh, doing things that we would consider very bad today. Uh, when the Greek epics are written, it's in this heroic age and Zeus is the ruler and his children are rulers or patron patron gods and goddesses of the cities of mankind. So you had like Apollo and Artemis and Hephaestus and Athena. Um, in other words, there's like full blast polytheism in place. Uh, and the old primordial gods are, are all on the bench. Oranos, he's dead or impotent or missing in action. Um, a similar story happens in the Sumerian stories with Anu and in the Egyptian stories with Osiris, they all get toppled in a coup and the younger ones take over. So why am I telling you this? <laughs> why on earth do I spend any time thinking of this? Uh, in the story of Greek mythology, the portrayal of the overthrow of the elder gods by the younger God, like Zeus, it, it reads as a kind of progress. So Zeus's victory reads like a good thing. 
the successful rebellion of Zeus reads like a freedom fighter story, like a brave heart of the heavens where William Wallace overthrows the evil Edward the Longshanks. There's a sense of propaganda in the stories. And obviously you can argue that um, against the Bible as well, because it's advocating for the one God. And uh, we'll go into, I, I'll go into that extensively actually uh, in a, in a future uh, episodes here, but there's a sense that the gods of the myth are seen as heroic. Um, some, even like, Hercu like Hercules especially, are even called heroes. So, of course, the rebellion that brought the heroes must have been a righteous act. Heroes are to be worshipped because they are righteous. Like, we, we talk about heroes today, we think they're righteous. But there is a story in here about the gods and heroes that is easily missed amid this victory champagne and the back-slapping hoopla of uh, those who are currently in power. The ancient people, somewhere along the way, seem to have changed from worshiping one god to worshiping many gods. You know, this may have even happened multiple times, we just don't have uh, everything written down from the very, very early periods of human history. Um, but the fact that one god is not worshiped, but many gods are worshiped, um, that is the opposite of the story of Abraham and his descendants in the Bible because they are going, that means they being the Israelites, are going from many gods back to the one God. So you can see they're going in the opposite direction. This results in a major issue and fundamental discrepancy between cultures. And to this day, it impacts individual and national interactions. The difference is staring us in the face through the stories of the cultures themselves in these ancient writings, in these old writings. The defeat of the rebellion makes the original God all-powerful for Jews and Christians. And conversely, the success of the rebellion of like Zeus defeating Saturn um, or Cronus um, in other mythologies makes the original God or gods weak. So the original ones are weak in the in the polytheistic world and in the monotheistic world, the one God is, is truly all-powerful. He doesn't get defeated. So in the case of Jews and Christians, this belief in one undefeated true God results in a different morality and expectations for life and the afterlife than that of the defeatable Uranus. Uranus, not Uranus. Either one. Uh, once I realized this, once I thought about this, much of the Christian story started to fall into place and make sense to me, even the difficult parts. The rebellion of the gods is actually a rebellion of the people because the moment the people kill off the creator god in their stories, then you have a vacuum of meaning that must be filled with a sub-story. The lower gods are inventions, stories to explain away the uncertainties and unknowns of life. And the reason we shrug off myth today is because uh, to us it's so, it's so apparent that these gods are invented. Um, a child who laughs at the word Uranus, that doesn't concern us because we know that the myth was just a powerless invention of the past, like Zeus or any other deity. So when we kill the idea of a single one god, a creator god, we as humans get creative. We pull the idea of god close to us just like the people were attempting to do in the tower of babel and they they wanted to reach god but what they really wanted the real goal was to become god or gods they wanted to make god serve man and if that was not possible then they would make new gods 
And that is what happened. It's what happens today in more subtle ways and less obvious ways. So when those building the Tower of Babel could not bring the Most High God down to the people, God, it said, scattered the people. Another way of saying this is that when the people failed to control the one God, they withdrew from God and invented their own gods and scattered themselves in a way. So the positioning of the Tower of Babel story in Genesis is incredibly important of where it lays right before we start talking about Abraham. Um, the reason why the Tower of Babel failed is not because of engineering limitations. And that's what um, literalists will read it. And of course, reading it literally is going to get you not very far unless you're reading it with the allegorical moral and how it relates to Jesus. You got to do those four things. So not just the one or you're going to get stuck. It's like driving with one wheel. Um, the whole tower idea of the Tower of Babel, um, it's, it's a metaphor. Um, and, you know, maybe they really were trying to build a tower. So you can, th this is the beauty of these stories. You can take it literally and it still makes sense in what it's trying to tell you with, for religious truth. Um, but the meaning of the story is an explanation of how humans rejected the idea of a single God to rule them, to rule over them. The problem for people was that God doesn't bow to human will. He carries out his will. Um, in fact, faith is submitting your intellect and will to God. That's what you're doing. You're giving it back. You're, you're giving it up, the power you're surrendering. And the Tower of Babel is saying this is when people would not do that. Um, same with Adam and Eve, you know. But anyway, uh, or Cain and Abel. But being human, to hear that um, God will not serve us, uh, that's unsatisfactory. We don't want that answer. And thus, learning that we could not become God or make him do our will, we created new gods, ones that would serve us. And I think the, you know, the famous line from uh, the devil in Paradise Lost is that it's better to uh, reign in hell than serve in heaven. That's, that's the same idea as, um, as this Tower of Babel. These gods, the gods that are created, though, is, are different from, if you think of a loving creator god, a single loving creator god, these sub-gods like um, Zeus or Osiris or, or whoever, um, they don't care what is in our heart. <laughs> they, they are not interested in what is in our heart, our intentions. It's a very different one, especially if you, you look at what is the essence of the Christian story of Jesus is that what is in your heart matters immensely. So these, no, these, these gods want only sacrifice, and we want control. There's this trade, like we will worship you if you give us this. Um, that's not how it works with the one God. So the problem with the one God, with only one, is that, is, is that not everyone can get what they want. That's the fundamental thing. If, if the one God made everyone happy, he would be a constant contradiction. And consider it this way. If two children are arguing over the same cookie, only one can eat it. Both Children cannot eat the cookie. Yes, they, okay, they could split the cookie, but let's just say it's a small cookie, or if you want, change it to a dollar where you couldn't tear it in half or something, a coin that you couldn't tear it in half. Uh, something that cannot be split apart, but I'm just going to stick with cookie, as in this cookie is going to one kid but not the other. One child will leave happy, and the other will leave pouting. To take this into, a relig into religious terms, one will win, and presume God loves him, and the other, the other will lose and assume that God loathes him or has cursed him. 
Uh, one will feel righteous, like selected, and one will feel victimized and abandoned. And both are wrong. Both are wrong. If you are in the one God world, that is the wrong response in both cases. So we'll take a quick aside here. The history of the Yankees and Red Sox franchises illustrate this as Boston fans assumed for 86 years that the team was under the curse of the Bambino as it was believed that the baseball gods had smiled on New York and abandoned Boston after the trade of Babe Ruth in 1920, the greatest player of all time. Um, the Yankees received the cookie. Let's put it that way. Boston received a curse. That's what they thought. And while this was mostly considered a joke, people believed it. And even they even had modern witches come in and do incantations or something or spells to reverse the curse. And I would guess millions of prayers went up from Christian people and Jewish people to God from Boston in those years. Um, if any franchise does appear to have been chosen, it is the New York Yankees, which is why many fans across America loathe the Yankees because the Yankees have won the cookie known as the World Series 27 times with the next closest team, the St. Louis Cardinals, being at a mere 11 cookies, which is a lot of cookies, but um, nowhere near 27. Uh, we spend a great deal of time praying for sports teams to win, not unlike the ancient prayers and sacrifices in cities where they worshipped gods and goddesses. Interestingly enough, the ancient gods often had a mascot or animal representation like our sports teams do. And since sports is a way of life in America, uh, when my team wins, I feel satisfied as if the world is somehow right and just and as if God had directed things correctly. But that is not how I am supposed to understand the world if I believe in one God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This is how the pagan gods worked, where they received prayers and answered them. It was this trade-off. You get something, you give something, um, sacrifice for control, power, etc. Well, God's will is not like this. His will is done regardless of which team wins, and it has nothing to do with my feelings on the matter or the players themselves. Uh, I think a lot of times people are, are watch a, a player score a touchdown, they see him pray, and they think, oh yeah, sure, God's on your side, that's ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous, but he, you can give thanksgiving, um, and that's not ridiculous. So, uh, But anyway, whether I get the cookie or someone else gets the cookie, God's will is done. It is his will. He, is the, he decides what happens. Whatever happens is his will. And that's the way to understand the world and the universe that has only one God, one actual power. The correct response is to give thanks whether you receive the cookie or not. So you could say that athletes on the field who just got the touchdown scored against them should kneel and say a prayer with the person who just scored. That would be the correct response, but that's really difficult to do. Um, but it is critical in understanding how the one God differs from the many gods because the many gods is competition and power and struggle and all of those things. Uh, to praise God for getting what I want, if I'm in that mode, is to slip into a worship of the slot machine God. Um, which is as false a God as Zeus. On the other hand, if I blame God for not getting what I want, then I've moved into rejection mode. I can slip into like a passive aggressive mode in order to fix or justify hurt feelings. When I perceive suffering or perceive abandonment of God, I might reject God wanting to hurt him by turning away from him, but it really only ends in self-harm to me. Um, another option is I may go in search of a new or a different uh, God or, or source of self-worth that will support my desires. 
uh, one way or another, I want satisfaction, which is not the same as praying for the one true God, God's will to be done. It's kind of a hard thing to, to recognize, but it is, uh, that's what you pray for is God's will to be done, not mine. That's in the Lord's prayer. Thy will be done. Um, it's the most, it's, they're all important, but that one, uh, really stands out to me. So this split, the split you see like between Genesis and the, um, like the Greek world or the Sumerian where they have one God or many gods. You can see this in the book, the Lord of the flies. And a lot of us have read this in, um, us cause we all had it in school or mo many of us did. Um, the boy Ralph keeps order on the Island initially with the symbol of the shell, this conch he, he holds up and he'll blow on it and all the, the kids will come running and they'll have a meeting. It's a representation of authority. The conch is beautiful in itself. And it represents the old world that the boys came from before their plane crashed on the island. This old world seems to be a kind of heaven in their minds where adult authority held a stabilizing and like centralized force in their lives. It was like the glue. They have this past civilized world represented in this conch. It's a beautiful thing um, created in the world. Um, the conch is like a sacred object, but it is only an object. Yet it seems to have power as when it's produced and, and they blow into it, order is brought to these meetings. Um, however, as soon as division begins and disagreement, Jack, who's the leader of the pack of choir boys who are hunters, they decide that they want to live by a different set of rules. They want new rules, but really they just want to rule. They want to win. They want to be in charge. They don't want Ralph and his appeal to an empty authority that no longer exists or has any teeth. That's the thing. It has no bite. You can't do anything. The weakness of Ralph is exposed uh, as his authority has no actual power to discipline or enforce any rules. In other words, the conch is exposed as a mere symbol or idol with no real power. And soon it's tossed onto some rocks where it shatters into pieces. And then you can see, yeah, it was just a shell. So didn't have any actual power in it. We just thought it did for a while. Jack and his hunters then move away to the other side of the island and create a new God, a God that encourages competition and hunting and mainly because Jack likes hunting. So whatever Jack likes becomes what the God likes. So what, what Jack wants, that's what this, um, this idol wants that he is, he creates. Um, he's created a new God like out of thin air. And he doesn't even have so much as an online bachelor's degree in theology from the University of Phoenix. He's just created a God like that. Um, by the mere speech of Jack, the power from Ralph's side of the island is declared dead. So, you know, if Jack cannot break the rules, then he will make the rules. His power is ensured by making sacrifices to the new God. Of course, Jack's God also has no power because as soon as someone else wants to break his rules, they can go and create their own God. And this is how gods come to be. They are power moves. They take power by force. Their explanations for why there is power, who has it and who doesn't. What Jack offers the young boys is safety and strength or the illusion of strength. Um, and he's willing to show that through violence. He'll, he'll commit violence to retain the power. And that's, uh, you know, where his power is coming from with just basically his willingness to do bad things that are not allowed under Ralph's rule of authority on the other side of the island. This calms the fears of the, of the little boys. Um, and Jack's idol is a dead pig's head placed on a stick that has been sharpened at both ends, famously says sharpened at both ends. 
And that's emblematic of what Jack will do to anyone that crosses him. And that's exactly what he plans on doing to uh, Ralph in the end of the book. So that's how these, the gods of myth come into existence. It's also how organized crime comes into existence is uh, weakness and fear and rejection of existing authority leads to an overthrow and like an undercurrent. And um, when, when the powers that are in charge are not working, something else will, will come up. The old authority must be replaced. Um, so, so human or divine gods are invented and they're conjured very naturally by our desires and fears in order to explain the universe and the world we live in. Most of all, we want something to restore a sense of order to calm our nerves about the unknown. And this is why chaos is at the beginning of all the creation stories. Chaos scares the hell out of us. That's a fact. Um, these, these gods have no power except in our minds because they only exist in our minds with perhaps an object that we venerate as the embodiment or personification of the idea like a golden calf or bull that we read about in the Bible. But like the golden calf or the bull, um, the conch shell, uh, the pig's head, they're all objects that have no actual power. They work for a while until the next disgruntled group or tribe or nation takes over by force. The void cannot be stared into for very long without a guardrail, or you will fall into the chaos and die. We need a story, we need a reason, a meaning, a vision, a protector, and you can choose the one God or you can choose invented gods. And people will choose that which serves their desires and calms their fears. That's, that's how they get to one side or the other of this. But these guardrails, these minor gods, the, um, the, the Zeus type of god, they're still with us today. And they might even be more so than they were in ancient times. But we just don't use golden statues or bloody sacrifices. Um, well, we do actually, but that's for another day, another episode. Uh, in the end of the book, Ralph is the only boy who has not converted to the new idol on Jack's side of the island. Ralph is the only believer in the old system, who is, and he's willing to stand up for the world symbolized by the conch, this rightly ordered, civilized world, as he sees it. The rest of them are like, I'm too scared, I'm going with Jack. Like, he's, he's willing to commit violence. Um, he's got food, too. So, <laughs> he ends up... Ralph ends up being hated and hunted because he won't join Jack's side. Most interesting in the end is that he is saved by this Navy ship that comes in and there's an officer. And while this seems to vindicate his appeal to the authority of the old world, the author of the book makes this closing scene a masterful conclusion because the larger world that the boys uh, have fled, why they were on a plane in the first place, why it crashed on an island, is because the world is in a war, like a nuclear war, a world war, and the same battle that is happening in microcosm on this island is playing out in the larger world, the entire world around them. Their old world of, of authority, um, the, one of the reasons it was, could be easily seen as an illusion is because the children know that there was a war going on there as well. So what's really interesting about this, the conclusion shows us that the island the Jack and Ralph war is no different from the adult world because this Navy ship is on its way to destroy other people, other nations. And it just happens to stop to save these boys on the island because they see this fire, this like conflagration as they're burning it down. And Ralph is running in utter terror from the other boys who are all painted up and ready to uh, jab him with the stick, the sharp stick. Um, 
So the naval officer seems to bring back this civilization of like what the Contra represented. He's all polished. He looks sharp. Uh, but in reality, uh, he's doing this Navy, Navy officer is doing exactly what Jack was doing to Ralph on the island, which is hunting other men just in a more polished and civilized way. He has a Navy ship. Um, he's got nice buttons. He's got nice, uh, I don't know, dress whites. I don't know what he's in, but um, power, you know, this is how power works. It justifies itself through whatever means necessary to keep it. So, of course, everyone who's ever read this book in middle school, whoever's read Lord of the Flies or read it in high school, is told that the weak boy, Simon, is the Christ character. And before Simon gets killed, Jack tells him this extremely important line in the book. Jack tells Simon, you're not wanted. Do you understand? We are going to have fun on this island. That's exactly what rejection of God sounds like from the Garden of Eden to the death of Christ in the Gospels. Adam and Eve reject God because it's more fun to eat the fruit. And they've talked themselves into it, um, or the, the shiny one talks them into it. Uh, the Pharisees and the Romans reject God because it's more fun to be in power than to surrender. Um, the cold reality is that to have, quote, fun and to eat all of the fruit, in order to do that, you have to reject or kill off the one God. Um, even though in reality, God can never be killed off. God doesn't go away or diminish because we, we just pretend he's not there. We can't stick our fingers in our ears and, and, and make noise and um, he doesn't disappear no matter what we say. So to believe in the one true God leads to a different set of rules, ones that are not so fun, which is exactly why it irritates us or a lot of us so much. It chafes us to know that there is only one answer, one truth, because then we can't always get what we want. The rules of, of the one God disallow those, quote, fun things by calling them sins, but the rules are all there for good reason and not arbitrarily. This is the root difference between worshiping one God versus many. The one God has rules, while the invented gods can have whatever rules the inventors choose, and even then the rules are malleable. That means you can change them into whatever you want. The invented gods can spin off as well into many new versions. Um, just think of uh, sitcoms that you've watched. Anyone who watches TV knows um, if, if you... Uh, how these gods, like I'm saying, gods can spin off into new stories and spin off and spin off. Um, anyone that watches TV can see how this happens. If you just think of shows that were that uh, started with an original concept and then they flung out these other shows like Radioactive Isotopes from Law and Order and All in the Family or Happy Days. Um, all of these spinoffs become progressively worse. Um, they're further from the inspired original with only a profit motive as the muse for the writers. I always imagine for these spin-off shows, they just take um, tasers and lock the writers in a room. And if they step outside of the door, they'll tase them until they produce a script um, with whatever uh, high concept idea some producer has come up with, because there's just nothing inspired about doing an, another spin-off of Law and Order or um, Happy Days, which took it to like its logical conclusion of uh, horrible spin-offs. But Anyway, um, this is kind of what it feels like when you read some of Ovid's Metamorphosis, and that's the Roman writer of mythology. And it's, it's a great, I love it. It's a great book. I read it um, not because uh, some people will re hear this and think um, like giving worship to pagan uh, gods of the ancient world. The thing is, when you read these stories about the ancient 
gods, you know they're fair, they're they're made up. Um, they have no power. I guess if it bothers you, you, you can always just do a uh, sign of the cross and renew your baptismal vows whenever you like, and there you have it. Um, you give yourself back. You always surrender back to God. So um, don't. So I really like these stories of Ovid's Metamorphosis. I read them in college, but you don't take them seriously as if they came from heaven or from were divinely inspired. Um, think of Arachne. There's a story of Arachne the spider who is the goddess of weaving and sewing. And this is where Minerva or Athena, there's this interaction with Arachne and it's about weaving and sewing. But um, once you're reading that story, you've entered into like the same realm as Paul Bunyan or Picos Bill or Goldilocks or Little Red Riding Hood. And I'm not making fun of the story of Arachne at all. I'm just saying that the mythology is so obviously invented that the whole tree of gods uh, all the way up to Oranos is poisoned if you are trying to sell it as divinely inspired. And this is what makes the gospel so different because there is no sense of fairy tale or fable about it. They're telling these stories very seriously. Um, even Hesiod is trying to tell them seriously, but it's just very obviously not real uh, that Zeus is in Mount Olympus. Whereas you read the gospels and it's, it's not, they're not written like tales. They do not read like fables. And in the overarching story of the whole Bible, the more you read it, the more strange and more connected it becomes. I always find it interesting that people who have read a lot of myth, like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, were still very devout believers um, in this one true God and Jesus, the Trinitarian God. So it's always interesting that people who have spent a lot of time in these fields um, still believe. Um, likewise, for scientists who've gone as far as you can down that path of learning about the natural world, and they still believe in um, God. So, so anyway, the, all of this has an important impact on how you interpret what is truth. And we're, we're living in an age where they'll call it like the post-truth world, um, which I always kind of think of as kind of funny because we're just returning back to like this era of uh, Pontius Pilate uh, when he, he has the greatest line ever in the Bible for what he, the, he represents the culture so perfectly with what he says. Um, his response, Pontius Pilate says to Jesus um, in three words that represents the entire difference in cultures and worldviews. So after Jesus states he's on trial in this kangaroo court kind of thing, you know, they, um, it's like he's arrested the night before and all of a sudden he's on trial for death the next day. Um, and Jesus says, I've come to testify the truth. And Pontius Pilate his response is the perfect summary of someone who lives under the pantheon of Rome and that culture that it creates. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? So just those three words, I mean, you can kind of see him saying it like, what is truth? Like, you know, he's, he's like a, a businessman or someone, he's, like, uh, he's trying to just get this thing over with and he's bored and he, he has this need, like automatic response that what is truth? Is, is there really such a thing? And that's exactly the discussions we're having all over the world or all over, especially in America today, uh, people saying there is no truth. And so it's like we have Pontius Pilate's uh, philosophy class every day online. And anyway, I try to stay offline now. But um, so Pontius Pilate's response to Jesus of what is truth could be the thesis statement of a culture that worships many gods. That's lowercase g. A better line could not more fully describe the Roman worldview of Pilate's era. 
And I'd say really most Americans today would give a, a similar response. Um, if, if you really ask them, if you really ask them, they would say, what is truth? Like Pilate, he speaks, uh, Pilate speaks uh, what today we would call his truth in that the truth is kind of this gray, movable, like protean, shape-shifting, kind of like the protean shape-shifting god of ancient myth. That's what a protean um, god was, where, um, in fact, uh, someone who is a shape-shifter, this is all over mythology, that's kind of like a good example. Pilate's kind of saying, well, what is truth? It's a sh shape-shifting thing, um, and it's not, actually. That's the, that's the thing. If you believe that, then you're you're already in trouble because now you've said there is no such thing as objective truth, which is like saying an objective truth, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, not equipped to do that kind of argument anyway. So, um, so truth is really, uh, what power declares it to be. That's kind of what Pilate is saying. Truth is the first casualty. As soon as we rule against one God in favor of the many gods, because you could go from, uh, Athens to, Corinth or and or Ephesus and they all had a different god and of course that god was the most important one so you just kind of nod your head and and you know try to get when in Rome do as the Romans kind of thing and move on without getting your head cut off um, but there is if you if there is no truth except what we decide then who decides you know it's, and it's who holds the power he who holds power and that's a lot of people want to dump the power today of who's in charge because they think that uh, that will solve all the problems. And that's kind of, it's really, I shouldn't laugh because it's, it's actually leads to a lot of very dangerous things. And, but that is the gist of it. Um, if you're not in power, you take power, then you decide what is true. Uh, for those that believe, if you believe in like the one true God, then there is truth and there is one undeniable truth. The funny thing is that Pilate in this story is looking at that truth when he tosses off this line and it's so rich in meaning. Pilate is literally staring at the truth. He's staring at it. He's telling the truth that truth doesn't exist. <laughs> There's a sense of comedy and tragedy all at once here. Pilate is lost. He's lost, but he's so close to the answer. He's so close to the answer he could touch it. He probably did. Uh, for Christians who believe in the one true God, Jesus is the truth. That's, that's the simple answer is he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's his own words. He is the complete and total truth. Um, but there's Pilate. He cannot see it. And why can't he see it? It's because he's spiritually blinded. He's blind. Um, he's blind not only because he dwells in the indoctrination of a Roman world with many gods, but more likely because he is blinded by his own ambition and earthly power. Kind of like Jack on the island.